Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin, and each week I use the words of Scripture and the power of our faith to bring a message of hope and life to all who wish to hear. I address issues that we encounter in everyday life. Recently, I've heard many people talking about how they're experiencing an increased awareness of evil in the world. More than usual, evil is palpable. Evil is invisible, but we somehow know that it is real. Today, I'm going to be talking about what evil is so that we can know better how to deal with it. And there's no better place for us to start than at the very beginning with the Bible's description in Genesis of how the awareness of evil entered into the life of humankind. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Here ends the reading. Years ago, I received a call for help from a woman to whom I will refer refer as Anne, whose teenage son Andy had committed suicide in his room at home. I can't go into his room, she said, distraught. I feel that something evil is in there. Can you come over and perform an exorcism? Performing exorcism lies outside the day-to-day job description of a Lutheran pastor. ELCA Lutherans don't have a right of exorcism, per se. Anne didn't know that, however, so I agreed to come over for a visit. For most of us, the word exorcism conjures up images of a possessed person with a spinning head and contorted body spewing obscenities at a cross-wielding priest and dark demonic rumblings emanating from the attic. These are images born out of Hollywood or a handful of biblical texts about Jesus casting out demons and don't much match the reality of what you and I are ever likely to encounter. So the first thing that I had to cast out were some of my own preconceptions about evil and exorcisms and realized that I was dealing with a mother who was struggling to cope with an unspeakable loss. That was something I was accustomed to dealing with. Television schedules are packed with crime dramas, and these dramas inevitably include the crime scene investigation team, or CSI unit, processing evidence 
and posing insightful theories about the homicide. Other than briefly covering their noses as they approach a corpse in an advanced state of decomposition, the technicians are usually pretty ho-hum or matter-of-fact in their approach. In reality, there is nothing ho-hum about the scene of a violent death. In real-life situations, even among people who frequently deal with scenes of violent death, there's nothing ho-hum. These places are tainted by the evil that took place there. When I arrived at Anne's house and visited Andy's room, I shared a disquieting sense that something was off in that room. She and I sat on the edge of Andy's bed, and she immediately launched into an hour-long story of her relationship with Andy and what he had been going through emotionally because of bullying at school. She showed me a journal full of dark drawings and tortured poetry. And as she talked, she exposed her sense of guilt that she had at perhaps not being supportive enough and not taking his cries for help seriously. What Anne really needed was a non-judging, listening ear and to hear a word of forgiveness. And as she talked, the evil seemed to dissipate. We didn't do an exorcism. Instead, I led her through the Lutheran rite of individual confession and forgiveness, and then we said a prayer of blessing on the room and on the house. Well, on second thought, maybe we did perform a kind of exorcism. A month later, Anne had repurposed Andy's room as her personal sewing room. Not only could she enter the room, it became a comforting, almost sacred space for her, filled not only with her crafts, but with pictures of Andy in happier times, and ribbons and other sports awards he had won, framed neatly on the wall. Now, something bad, something terrible had occurred in that room. But was there really an evil presence there? that we somehow manage to dismiss or disperse? To answer that question, we need to think about what evil is, and isn't. That may seem like an easy question, but it's deceptively elusive. To paraphrase an old saying, I don't know what evil is, but I know it when I see it. We can think of evil in three different forms, natural, metaphysical, and moral. Natural evil is a term used for bad or destructive things that happen in the natural world, which are independent of any human action. Take, for example, Hurricane Katrina, a Category 5 Atlantic hurricane which struck the Gulf Coast in 2005, resulting in 1,800 fatalities and $125 billion in damage. The impact on global warming on the weather aside, the tragic effects of Katrina were the result of geophysical forces involving air masses, atmospheric warming, tides, and a host of other natural phenomena. 
From the standpoint of nature, such events are neutral, and the term evil may not even apply. In his poem, In Memoriam A.H.H., Alfred Lord Tennyson describes nature as red in tooth and claw, which vividly illustrates the violent and bloody death that occurs on a regular basis in the natural world. Last summer in my backyard I watched as a frenzied group of robins futilely attacked a chipmunk as it dragged the lifeless body of a nestling by the neck into the foliage. Although it forever altered my image of chipmunks, I don't think that the chipmunks are evil. They are just little warriors in the battle for survival in which some animals are winners and some are losers. According to the Genesis creation story, before Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, human beings were as oblivious to evil as that vicious little chipmunk. Why God built such evil into creation, or at least allowed it to exist, is a matter for theologians to discuss after they've settled how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. But in general, natural evil is something that we accept, realizing there's not much we can do about it. We have to adapt to it and protect ourselves from it. A related, related category of evil, metaphysical evil, is similar to natural evil, then it's not a, of human origin. Metaphysical evil, or we might call it supernatural evil, are forces or beings that can't be explained in material or physical terms, but nonetheless exist. Demons and satanic forces fall into that category. Metaphysical evil is the stuff of exorcisms and demonology. Metaphysical evil differs from natural evil in the belief that human beings can influence it through religious and other arcane rituals and practices. And the Bible is full of references to metaphysical evil and its presence in the world. In the modern world, however, the third form of evil, moral evil, is our main source of concern. Our moral sensibilities are what make us human. To be human is to understand the difference between right and wrong. Moral codes are not universal or unchanging. The earliest written moral codes, the Code of Hammurabi and the Ten Commandments, contain many consistent and timeless rules for behavior, including a respect for life and property. In the arguments over whether it was acceptable to post the Ten Commandments in U.S. courthouses, the argument was made that the laws of the Decalogue transcended any specific religious tradition. And they do. Moral laws and their application have evolved in the roughly 4,000 years since those ancient codes. Slavery, for example, today is universally condemned, while in earlier societies, human beings could be treated as property. Today, individual liberty is an established moral good. 
And the thou shalt not kill commandment has been expanded from just a prohibition against murder to include taking of life under any circumstances, such as in capital punishment. All things considered, however, the human sense of right and wrong have long been amazingly stable over time. To all the bad things that I have done throughout my life, I don't think I could ever plead ignorance of what was right and wrong. My best defense, usually, is just that I didn't stop to consider the right and wrong. And that's no defense at all. The evil that I hear people talking about today is primor primarily moral evil. The way human beings treat each other. There's one further distinction that I would like to make within the category of moral evil. Individual evil versus institutional evil. As we will see, this distinction has important political and rhetorical implications. A good example of institutional evil can be seen in the massive wrongs that have been committed because of racism. In the ancient world, including during the time that Jesus walked the earth, racism was baked into the society through laws and customs. It was assumed in a war that conquering troops would claim defeated people as the spoils, taking them into a lifetime of involuntary servitude. The idea that one person could own another filtered down through history to the, to the American slave trade in the early years of our nation. At least in certain parts of our country, the universal moral code was interpreted in such a way that slavery was legalized and therefore not seen as a wrong and certainly not evil. A slave owner selling a woman's child was no more evil than a chipmunk snatching a fledgling robin from its nest. Even early on in America, however, the morality of slavery was questioned and attitudes began to change. In the Midwestern town in which I live, in the 1950s, neighborhood housing covenants, often including regulations, forbidding the selling of houses to people of color. The last miscegenation laws, which prohibited marriage between whites and non-whites, remained on the books in some states as late as 2000. In 2021, seven states still required a couple to state their racial background in order to obtain a marriage license. These are examples of institutional racism. They change, but they change slowly. Understanding how our perception of moral evil evolves over time is helpful in the current debate over teaching of critical race theory and sensitivity to how we view our American past. It's not helpful for us to look back upon our ancestors as evil any more than it is for us to condemn Jesus or the apostles for not speaking out against slavery in their day. It's also not helpful for us to refuse to discuss the issue. Our present debate doesn't condemn our past, but our past informs the present. We cannot change who we were, but we can determine 
who we are. The determination of evil involves human perspective. That was illustrated by the story of Adam and Eve and that fateful piece of fruit. The apple, or some say it was a fig, opened our eyes to right and wrong, good and bad, and in the extreme to evil. And our eyes keep opening wider and wider. Evil always existed and will continue to exist, but God is constantly calling us away from the evil toward the good, toward the kingdom of God. In other words, in religious language, we are being sanctified, made holy, coming into the realm of God. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. More importantly than talking about what evil is or isn't is how we live our lives. Let me turn for a moment to the matter of individual evil. There are many historical figures that have been branded as evil. The Roman Emperor Nero, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. All of them caused vast human suffering and mass death. They descended far below the moral standard of bad. And from any perspective, they violate our sense of what is morally good. And that evil is the only term that can apply. Today I hear people beginning to talk about Vladimir Putin as evil because of the death and destruction he has unleashed upon the people of Ukraine. I think that it's been reasonably argued that Putin is personally responsible for attempting genocide and the commission of war crimes, along with other leaders. That being so, I can understand applying the label of evil to Putin, comparable to Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Assad in Syria. In Syria. Likewise, does Russia deserve the label of evil? Back in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan referred to USSR, the USSR as an evil empire. Is Russia the residual or revitalized version of that evil empire? Considering the atrocities that have been perpetrated by Russian troops, I once again can understand that thinking. But consider the implications of labeling a person or a country as evil. True evil cannot be reasoned with. True evil leaves no room for compromise or conversation. Evil cannot be redeemed. It can only be confronted and destroyed. The demonization of another country and other people can be problematic. And that would apply that only answer can be a struggle to the death, all-out war that leads to the end of the enemy. The answer is to exercise the evil empire and its leaders. The true implications of that are unthinkable. So let's go back 
to that bedroom exorcism I was called upon to do. In that case, I had to cast out my preconception of evil and address the pain of a grieving mother. That was something I could handle. In a similar manner, we can cast out an idea of, of an evil Vladimir Putin leading an evil empire. Vladimir Putin is a ruthless and seemingly morally blind man who is using his power to inflict great suffering on millions of people. Some of his soldiers are willing to perform brutal and savage acts. The Russian people in general have grown up experiencing centuries of war and cultural conflict in that region. With a more granular view of Putin and Russia, we are left with possible means of approaching the situation, including the use of military force, economic sanctions, and hopefully diplomacy and human compassion. We can support the innocent victims of war and pray for peace. These are options, no matter how difficult, to performing a nuclear exorcism. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. In the end, we pray that God will cast out evil from the world. And to that end, let us be instruments of his peace. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and protect you. May God keep you from all evil and give you peace. Amen.